You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on this 10th day of March, 2012. And I would like to once again welcome everyone to this podcast and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, for previous episodes of this podcast, as well as interviews, articles, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past five years, all available for free download. And of course, the Corbett Report is brought to you by you, so let me take this opportunity to thank wholeheartedly once again all of those people who have signed up to become subscribers and or purchased the 2010 Video Archive DVD over the past week. As viewers of the New World Next Week video series that I do with James Evan Pilato of MediumMonarchy.com will no doubt know from the last episode, I am planning to go to Osaka tomorrow, Sunday, March 11th, 2012, the one-year anniversary of the tsunami that started the whole Fukushima meltdown scenario, and I will be going to attend an anti-nuclear march that is supposedly going to take place there tomorrow and be attended by 10,000 people, or so the PR says, so we'll see. And I want to once again thank everyone who put in their order for the DVD that helped to make this uh, trip to Osaka possible. Again, I couldn't do this all without you, so thank you so much for all of that. And as always, we have a lot of information to get through in today's episode, so let's get straight into the podcast. Welcome, my friends, to episode 221 of the Corbett Report podcast, Reclaiming Skepticism. Perhaps the best thing that can be said about pompous, self-congratulatory hypocrisy is that it is self-parodying. There are also a lot of emails about the 9-11 truth movement, just yeah. so you know. Lots Well, I'm lots sure of there are. You know, uh, look, I, 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 I feel like the need for a conspiracy is very similar psychologically to the need, to the need for a god. <laughs> I think we desperately want to believe that somebody is in charge, even if it's somebody who's working against us. It's... It's horrifying to believe that everything is totally random. Unfortunately, I, I believe that that's the case. And it's got this inscription, which I will read to you now. You ready? Yep, hit me. It, it says, uh, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Unite humanity with a living new language. Rule, passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Let all nations rule internally resolving external disputes in a world court. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Balance personal rights with social duties. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. That's what it says. Whether it's David Icke seeing reptoids, or your co-workers and neighbors shunning government-approved drugs, it's the same thought process, and it's the brain doing its job properly. Like a classroom of students who all honestly studied hard, and yet still got varying scores on the test, our brains are going to be right sometimes and wrong sometimes but they're all following the proper steps to get there. Conspiratorial thinking is not necessarily, by itself, 
indicative of psychiatric illness. I think that there's there's just a kind of a kind of um, I don't know if it's you know cognitive dissonance or what, but but this uh, this confirmation bias raised to an extreme level, where. I think what bothers me is that there is no correlation or, you know, reverse correlation between how crazy a theory is or like how unlikely it is, you know, how tenuous the evidence is and how firmly the people who really believe in it believe in it. And and I'll talk to people who seem pretty reasonable and, you know, they'll say something like, I think there are some, you know, issues with the theory of evolution and, you know, maybe it didn't all happen like this, which is a, you know, fairly reasonable position to take as yep. far as crazy conspiracies go. Yep. And then the people who say that the Earth is six thousand years old, and and I'll 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 hear that hear both of those for people who are sort of similarly well educated and and otherwise fairly intelligent, and and they just seem like they're such wildly, they're you know one of them is so wildly out there, and then and then you go further and further into like the lizard people domain of aliens, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, and and uh, and still the people you talk to often come across as pretty rational and reasonable it's and it's just weird it, it seems like there's something else going on here than you know normal logic and psychology and that kind of bugs me trying to point that out to people who i otherwise feel like are pretty smart ah yes friends today we're going to venture into the wild and wacky world of skepticism and i imagine at this point there are probably two groups of people in the audience those who are already aware of the so-called quote-unquote skeptical movement and those who aren't. So for those who aren't, you're going to be introduced to it today. And for those who are already aware of these self-professed skeptics who apparently in their own formulation are the arbiters of all truth, reason, goodness, and science in the world, well, don't worry, I have listened to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of their podcast, so you don't have to. And yes, the skeptical movement as a movement is something that's gaining steam and growing day by day, it seems, of people who are, well, professing themselves to be skeptical about all things, all claims that they hear, and thus they like to attack those ridiculous out there types of things, the spoon bending and the water dousing and the, oh yes, by the way, the 9-11 conspiracy theorizing and other such equally ridiculous paranormal pseudoscience woo, as they call it. And, uh, well, back in a bygone, more innocent era, we may have turned to the Merriam-Webster or the Oxford English to uh, inform us what a term means. But in this day and age, we actually live in a world where you just append .com to the end of a word to find out what it means. And in this case, skeptic.com will bring you to the website of the Skeptics Society, which also publishes a skeptic magazine, which is, uh, well, one of the Bibles of the skeptic community. So reading from the about page on skeptic.com, quote, The Skeptic Society is a scientific and educational organization of leading scientists, scholars, investigative journalists, historians, professors, and teachers. Our mission is to investigate and provide a sound scientific viewpoint on claims of the paranormal, pseudoscience, fringe groups, cults, and claims between science, pseudoscience, junk science, voodoo science, pathological science, bad science, non-science, and plain old nonsense. Under the direction of Dr. Michael Shermer, the society engages in discussions with leading experts and investigates fringe science and paranormal claims. It is our hope that our efforts go a long way in promoting critical thinking and lifelong inquisitiveness in all individuals. And then there is a quotation from Baruch Spinoza, I have made a ceaseless effort not to ridicule 
not to bewail, not to scorn human actions, but to understand them. End quote. Well, you can go and continue reading about the Skeptic Society there on Skeptic.com. You can look through the uh, the pages of their magazine. You can read some of the articles that are up there. You can start exploring some of the other podcasts and websites that are related to this. And basically, you can just think of any sort of imaginary derivation of the word skeptic and skeptical and skepticality and skeptoid and skeptically and all of those types of things. And just uh, go search to your heart's content and find all of those very podcasts, but perhaps it would behoove us to stick to what is considered to be one of the main authorities on the subject, Dr. Michael Shermer, of course, founder and publisher of Skeptic Magazine. And some more information of Dr. Shermer can be garnered from the usual sources, but perhaps the best source for information would be michaelshermer.com, where uh, on the about page, again, you can read about Dr. Michael Shermer. Quote, Dr. Michael Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, the executive director of the Skeptic Society, a monthly columnist for Scientific American, the host of the Skeptics Distinguished Science Lecture Series at Caltech, and adjunct professor at Claremont Graduate University. End quote. Well, that is certainly an austere pedigree, so I'm assuming that Dr. Shermer must know what he's talking about. And indeed, he is oft-cited in the skeptical community, so he it would behoove us to take him seriously. So let's take a listen to an audio excerpt from a book that he wrote called Why People Believe Weird Things, writing about super- pseudoscience, superstitions, and other confusions of our time. And we'll listen to an audio clip of Dr. Shermer himself reading from his book and explaining a little bit more about what is meant by this term, skepticism. What, then, you may ask, does it mean to be a skeptic? Some people believe that skepticism is rejection of new ideas, or worse, they confuse skeptic with cynic, and think that skeptics are a bunch of grumpy curmudgeons unwilling to accept any claim that challenges the status quo. This is wrong. Skepticism is a provisional approach to claims. Skepticism is a method, not a position. Ideally, skeptics do not go into an investigation closed to the possibility that a phenomenon might be real or that a claim might be true. After examining the evidence, one may be skeptical of the claim or skeptical of the skeptics. The creationists are skeptical of the theory of evolution. So-called Holocaust revisionists are skeptical of the historical research that documents the Holocaust. I am skeptical of these skeptics. In other cases, such as recovered memories or alien abductions, I'm skeptical of the claims themselves. It is the evidence that matters, and the scientific method is the best tool we have for determining which claims are true and which are false, or at least offering probabilities of the likelihood of a claim being true or false. Well, that sounds eminently reasonable. In fact, I find myself in agreement with all of this. So it makes it sound like Dr. Shermer is the type of person who would not evaluate anything before knowing all the facts. He would he would take each claim on its merits and then weigh the evidence for and against. And if people are wrong, he would calmly try to correct them on the points where they've gone wrong. 
And if if the points uh, actually surprise him and he, he come to a different conclusion than he would have, he's happy to adjust his thinking and to, to move on from there. So that sounds absolutely like the modus operandi of the Corbett Report and what I try to do. Of course, I'm only human, so there's no way that I can reach that ideal. But at any rate, I certainly try to evaluate claims on their merits and, and look at evidence and weigh them out beforehand. I, I think that's absolutely reasonable and something that I try to do. So, for example, I would assume that in the wake of the Osama bin Laden killing, quote-unquote, back in May of 1st of 2011, Dr. Shermer waited patiently to see the photographs and see what other types of evidence that the U.S. military was able to provide to show that they had killed Osama bin Laden in the way and the manner in which they did. And when it came out that, in fact, every single part of that story that we had been told from the beginning, such as the live video feed and the fact that he had resisted, etc., etc., when it came out that all of that was, in fact, untrue, as it did in the following days, I'm sure he looked at that quizzically and said, well, there must be something more to this story. Or, or for example, when Andrew Breitbart, a 43-year-old man, uh, drops down dead in the middle of the street on March 1st after having admitted that he had a bombshell video of Barack Obama saying, wait until they see what happens on March 1st. Well, I'm sure he would say, well, that's that's rather odd. People who are 43 years old don't generally drop down dead on the street every day. It certainly could be natural causes. It certainly could be something untoward, and it would behoove us to wait patiently until the autopsy results come in to see what the conclusion is. And other such calm, rational weighing of the facts and evidence when something startling or surprising or big happens and there are claims made about that. And that's exactly the approach I try to take. I try to be skeptical and weigh the evidence as it comes, just like Dr. Shermer does. Right? No one will ever make me believe that Lee Harvey Oswald took any shot. I don't think it was an accident, personally. I think that somebody... Killed. The military-industrial complex killed John F. Kennedy in plain view. I can prove that there's a private banking cartel setting up a world government because they admit they are. No one's safe. Do you understand that? Here's what's funny about the conspiracy theorists. They call themselves skeptical, but in fact, they are the least skeptical people you'll ever meet. They believe anything they read as long as they already agree with it. It looks like being certain even of something which is very terrible and very frightening may be psychologically preferable, at least to many people, than being in doubt, being uncertain. Because if you're uncertain, you, you're suspended. You don't know what stance to take. What conspiracies do is they give us a little dopamine hit, like, ooh, I got the pattern, I figured it out, I know what's really going on here. The rub is which patterns are real and which are not. Some of the Secret Service agents right. said shots came from the building. Yeah. Some of them said they came from the grassy knoll. We want the size of the event to have an equally large cause. So JFK, the leader of the free world, killed by a lone nut, uh, a, a nobody? Come on, that just doesn't feel right. I'm worried about the corrosive effect these theories have on trust, on social functioning. It's important to have criticism, it's important to have a wide range of different views and perspectives in society. It's right to hold institutions and governments to account, but it's not right to assume that everyone's up to no good. It's just not the way the world is. In an unhealthy society, conspiracy thinking becomes a mass movement based on fear, anxiety and anger 
and it ends up targeting scapegoats. Conspiracy theories are not going to go away. Irrational conspiracy theories are not going to go away. And they're never going to cease having an emotional appeal to us. Or okay, maybe not. Well, that was the trailer for a new Doc Zone documentary from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation called Conspiracy Rising, which evidently aired in Canada this past Thursday. And there is an online way in which you can watch it, but not if you're in Japan like myself. So I have not been able to watch the full documentary, although I can't say that that's much of a loss at this point, because at this point, I think watching these types of documentaries is pretty much a paint-by-numbers production, whereby they have a couple of main thrusts about uh, dismissing evidence out of hand and then making broad accusations about the mindset. Why do people believe these crazy things? And it turns into a psychological analysis. So I think I pretty much know the thrust of the documentary without even having seen it. And, uh, and But if you want to, of course, you can go follow the link. And if you happen to be in North America, I'm sure you can go watch it online if you dare, if you want to. And I always encourage and invite and implore people to go and look at things which would contradict what they might already believe, because that's the only way that we can ever come to a better understanding of what it is we believe and why we believe it. And that, I think, is part of the skepticism which this episode is supposedly about, right? If not the skepticism that is put forward by people like Dr. Shermer. And for whatever great work Dr. Shermer has done on spoon bending or other such topics of no real importance in the bigger scheme of things, his record on conspiracy theorizing, quote-unquote, is atrocious. Here are Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walking on the moon. It was exciting watching that, and yet, today, 6% of Americans think it was all done in a Hollywood studio, faked by our government in order to avoid the humiliation of losing to the Soviet Union in the space race. Now, this doesn't surprise me. People come up to me at airports and say, how come you don't report on how the government created crack to kill black people or AIDS to kill gays? Or how there's a U.N. plot to create a new world order, a totalitarian world government. I say to them, why are you so convinced if a new world order were really happening, it would be a conspiracy of thousands of people all over the world? Wouldn't it leak? Wouldn't some of those people be eager to talk about it? Wouldn't we in the media love to put it on the front page? Wouldn't it be a big headline? Don't you think that the fact that it's not on the front page means it's probably not true? And they look at me and they just don't believe I don't convince them. Why are some people so eager to believe in conspiracies? Michael Shermer studies that. He's the author of the book, The Believing Brain, from ghosts and gods to politics and conspiracies. So, Michael, there's a plot for one world government. And people believe that. Lots right. Of well, those are the... Yeah, they, they do. They actually think that uh, there's a, an attempt at world domination. There's 12 people living in London, the Illuminati or the Rockefellers or the Rothschilds or more recently the Bush, the Bushes and so on, that somehow they are all orchestrating this. And basically with conspiracies, unlike a lot of the other claims we check at, at Skeptic, that um, some of them are true. I mean, Watergate was a conspiracy. The attempted assassination and then successful assassination of Lincoln was a conspiracy. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand that triggered World War One was a conspiracy. So, so there are can't some just real blanketly ones. say very few. Right. So what what criteria what criteria do we have? Basically, 
the more people that have to be involved, the less likely it is to be true. The more components that have to come together, the more elements that all have to be coordinated just perfectly, the less likely it is to be true. People can't keep their mouth shut. As you know, three people can keep a secret. If two of them are dead, Franklin said that centuries ago, it's still true today. I mean, if you just think about Watergate, I mean, this here you have the most powerful administration in the world, and they couldn't even break into a hotel uh, successfully. And, and in any and, case, and and today, people blabbed about it afterwards. Today, many Americans believe that September 11th was orchestrated by President Bush as an excuse to wage war in Iraq. But think about what would have to come together for this. We, we already know that the planes hit the buildings. We've all seen the videos of it. So not only did that, have to, not only did that happen, but they also believe that in, uh, explosive devices were intentionally planted inside both World Trade Center buildings, these two of the most secure buildings in the world. Somehow uh, conspirators got in there and for months ahead of time planted these bombs inside. In other words, once you start spinning it, you have hundreds and hundreds of elements that would have to come together and thousands of people that would have to coordinate this. Not one of them wants to go on your show to tell what they really saw. Not one told their spouse or their girlfriend uh, at Pillow Talk, look what I did, or you know what I saw? Not one. Because this is what happens. We find out about conspiracies because people can't keep their mouth shut. And yet nothing like that has happened with 9-11. 9-11 was done exactly how we think it was done by al-Qaeda, not by the Bush administration. And yet 16% of Americans say it's very likely that federal officials had a role in this. More say somewhat likely, only slightly more than half say not likely. Some believe it because they think the corporate media, I've been called that, the corporate media were implicit, were complicit in cover-ups. Right. Even if that were true, that somehow, let's say, Rupert Murdoch ran all the news. And uh, we already know that there's, you know, hundreds of different media sources that somebody like a drudge. I mean, think of how drudge got his name by being an alternative media, that somebody would be the next drudge by blowing open the biggest story of the century, that 9-11 is orchestrated by the Bush administration. We have the proof. Here it is. Uh, surely somebody would do that. And I should also say, as someone who's worked in the corporate media for ABC and now for Rupert, that the corporate media may have one wish, but they can't control us. I mean, the people at ABC, most of them hated business and just wouldn't do what the businessman in charge would have, might have told them to do. And rarely did anyone, does anyone tell us to do anything. We really do have a free press in America. What about the moon That's landing? That's right, we do. How can so many people think that was faked in a studio? Well, in, in part because it is such a fantastic, amazing feat that it seems like, well, gosh, could they really have done that? But if you think about it, uh, in terms of the technology at the time, it would have been an even better feat to be able to film something like that and pull it off without all those engineers working at NASA who were keeping track of the telemetry coming back from the spacecraft as it was heading for the moon. That would have had to have been coordinated by some sort of fantastic satellite telemetry, and that, that just wasn't even possible at the time. And so the question is why? Why do people believe these things? In part, it's because of something called cognitive dissonance. We, uh, we want to balance our, our view of the world with the way things should be. So the assassination of JFK, 
which has to be something big comp comparable to killing a president. Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone, a lone nut, a, a nobody, that doesn't jive. It doesn't feel consonant. It feels dissonant. Or Princess Di, she's a princess. What did she die of? Speeding, drunk driving, no seatbelt. It doesn't get more mundane than that. That's what lots of people die from. But she's a princess, so it had to be some sort of cabal, a conspiracy, uh, a plot against her, a murder, an assassination that feels better to most people. Thank you, Michael Shermer. It may feel better, but it's not true. But it's one thing to simply say that Dr. Shermer and others of his ilk are being hypocritical when they employ these types of, quote, arguments, unquote, against the, quote, conspiracy theorists, unquote. But it's another thing to demonstrate that. And what better way to do that than to have Michael Shermer do it to himself? So, everyone, I'm pleased to present to you Michael Shermer debunking Michael Shermer. Fallacy 9. Rumors do not equal reality. Rumors begin with, I read somewhere that, or I heard from someone that. Before long, the rumor becomes confused with reality, as I know that passes from person to person. Rumors may be true, of course, but usually they are not. They do, however, make for great tales. Ah, yes, rumors do not equal reality. A very apt point. It's very true to point out, and no matter what rumors one might hear, it certainly doesn't mean that they're valid, and we must examine those rumors for their truth or lack thereof, like we would with any other statement of fact. So, absolutely, I agree completely with Dr. Michael Shermer. However, I disagree with Dr. Michael Shermer, who writes in Paranoia Strikes Deep from September 2009, quote, but as former Nixon aide G. Gordon Liddy once told me, and he should know, the problem with government conspiracies is that bureaucrats are incompetent and people can't keep their mouths shut. Complex conspiracies are difficult to pull off, and so many people want their quarter hour of fame that even the men in black couldn't squelch the squealers from spilling the beans. End quote. Well, as we can see, Dr. Shermer is clearly in disagreement with Dr. Shermer, who doesn't believe that the single anecdote from G. Gordon Liddy would be enough to prove the proposition that government conspiracies cannot happen because bureaucrats are incompetent and people can't keep their mouths shut, quote-unquote. So that should be discarded as not being factual and not really taking a look at any specific instance of a conspiracy and how it played out and who was involved and how it was exposed and whether or not it proves or disproves the general proposition that bureaucrats are incompetent and can't keep their mouths shut. So it's absolutely useless in determining the truth or lack thereof behind any particular proposition. But perhaps G. Gordon Liddy didn't tell him that. I also think that passage by Dr. Shermer is a good illustration of another logical fallacy pointed out by Dr. Shermer. Fallacy 21. Circular Reasoning Also known as the fallacy of redundancy, begging the question, or tautology, this is when the conclusion or claim is merely a restatement of one of the premises. Christian apologetics is filled with tautologies. Is there a God? Yes. How do you know? Because the Bible says so. How do you know the Bible is correct? Because it was inspired by God. In other words, God is because God is. Science also has its share of redundancies. What is gravity? The tendency for objects to be attracted to one another. Why are objects attracted to one another? Gravity. 
In other words, gravity is because gravity is. Tautology can be useful in forming operational definitions. Yet, difficult as it is, we must try to construct operational definitions that can be tested, falsified, and refuted. Ah, uh, yes, I think Dr. Shermer is exactly right to point out that circular reasoning is a logically fallacious mode of reasoning that far too many charlatans employ to pull one over on their audience. Exactly as Dr. Shermer does in that Paranoia Strikes Deep article, where he argues, based on what G. Gordon Liddy told him, that government conspiracies are well-nigh impossible to pull off because someone always spills the beans. And how does he know this? Well, because in every case where there has been a claim of conspiracy, either that has been proven or disproven by someone spilling the beans. So, in fact, wouldn't this, in fact, be circular reasoning? So, if it is going to be exposed, it will be exposed by an insider, and if it isn't exposed by an insider, then it didn't happen. Uh, that doesn't actually add up logically if you think about it for long enough. But let's move along to another example of circular reasoning that Dr. Shermer likes to employ, much to the chagrin, I'm sure, of the Dr. Shermer who wrote uh, that book, Why We Believe Weird Things. And this one comes from a Huffington Post blog that he wrote way back in December of 2010. My day in Dealey Plaza, why JFK was killed by a lone assassin. Quote, On Tuesday, December 7th, I walked through and around Dealey Plaza in Dallas, where JFK was assassinated by a lone assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald. Or was he? A lone assassin, that is. Yes, he was. But that is not what anyone giving informal tours of the plaza will have you believe if you give them a few minutes and a few bucks. End quote. Moving down further in the article, quote, The most striking thing about being in Dealey Plaza for me was how small it is. Perhaps because the assassination itself was bigger than life, we expect the geography to match the eventuality. But that is certainly not the case here. Two X's on the street mark where JFK was hit. First in the throat, causing his arms to move up and splay out, and second, where the bullet found its cranial mark and literally blew his brains out, and, according to one conspiracist there, sent the skullcap flying across the street and onto the adjacent lawn. What is astounding is how close both X's are to the sniper's nest in the book depository building. Both from the street level looking up and from the window looking down, there is a museum on the sixth floor from which you can gain the perspective of the assassin. It seems clear that Oswald could hardly have missed. Given the fact that he was designated a sharpshooter by the Marines during his time in the service, and the fact that the Kennedy's car was traveling less than 10 miles per hour after making the sharp left onto Elm Street, one is left whispering under one's breath, Kennedy was a sitting duck. Look at the two photographs at the end of this post, each taken from one of the X's on the street. I tried to snap a pic from the sniper's nest, but this must be a problem for the museum, because in addition to no photography signs, there is a guard standing there the entire time. The window from which Oswald fired is the square window on the far right of the building, second from the top. Is it really necessary to invent additional assassins when it is obvious that one could have done the job? No. LHO acted alone in killing JFK. QED. End quote. Ah, Dr. Shermer. Dr. Shermer must be so disappointed in you for violating so many different laws of logical reasoning in one fell swoop, but among some of those that you touched on there are... Fallacy 20. Either or. Also known as the fallacy of negation, or the false dilemma, this is the tendency to dichotomize the world so that if you discredit one position, 
the observer is forced to accept the other. This is a favorite tactic of creationists, who claim that life either was divinely created or it evolved. Then they spend the majority of their time discrediting the theory of evolution so they can argue that since evolution is wrong, creationism must be right. But it is not enough to point out weaknesses in a theory. A new theory needs evidence in favor of itself, not just against the opposition. Because, of course, even if you did somehow disprove that there was a second shooter because the X's on the street are very close to the building, which, by the way, is not a proof of any sort, even if you did disprove there was a second shooter, that does not prove that Lee Harvey Oswald was the shooter, as you claim. That would be an example of an either-or fallacy. And, of course, we can also say that you are applying this fallacy. Fallacy 24. Ideological immunity or the Planck problem. In day-to-day -day life, as in science, we all resist fundamental paradigm change. Social scientist J. Stuart Snelson calls this resistance an ideological immune system. He observed that educated, intelligent, and successful adults rarely change their most fundamental presuppositions. According to Snelson, the more knowledge individuals have accumulated and the more well-founded their theories have become, the greater the confidence in their ideologies. The consequence of this, however, is that we build up an immunity against new ideas that do not corroborate previous ones. Whereby the entire problem of who killed JFK comes down to the question of how far away from the X's on the street was the sniper's nest, quote-unquote. And if that is found to be a certain distance, which I guess you judge by, uh, I'm not sure, did you measure how many feet it was? Did you did you think about the uh, the trajectory of the bullet or the uh, the tree or anything of that sort? Well, it didn't seem so from the, uh, the three paragraphs there in that Huffington Post article, but maybe you did, I don't know. But, uh, but somehow you immediately use that to positively affirm the identity of the shooter himself. Now that is a pretty bold statement and one that seems to disregard, well, the millions upon millions upon millions of words that have been written about the various aspects of what came into play that day and who Lee Harvey Oswald was and where he was and how we know where he was and the testimony of the various people that day, etc, 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 which might just complicate your little hypothesis there. Oh, just a tad, wouldn't you say? I'm not sure if QED is quite justified at the end of that article, Dr. Shermer, and I'm sure the Dr. Shermer who wrote about those logical fallacies would agree. Of course, we could go on. Fallacy 17. Ad hominem and tu quoque. Respectively, these literally mean to the man and you also. These fallacies redirect the focus from thinking about the idea to thinking about the person holding the idea. The goal of an ad hominem attack is to discredit the claimant in hopes that it will discredit the claim. Calling someone an atheist, a communist, a child abuser, or a neo-Nazi does not in any way disprove that person's statement. Yeah. Uh, I myself am a skeptic of the 9-11 Commission report. Uh, we now have over 120 military, senior military and senior government officials that have come out and said that the 9-11 Commission report is not up to the task. Um, this includes uh, FBI whistleblower Sybil Edmonds and also uh, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, um, co-chairs 
Keene and Hamilton have gone as far as to say recently that the commission was designed to fail and even to the point of obstruction. Um, can you now admit that we did not get the best report possible? And also more importantly, as we the people, do we not have an absolute requirement to know what happened on 9-11? Well, sure, uh, but before I answer the question, just out of curiosity, mm -hmm. did somebody send you here? No. Because <laughs> every stop on my book tour, does somebody read something like you just did from a 9-11 thing that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about? So, and I found on a web page, somebody forwarded me an email that said, go to Shermer's talks cause he, and, and read something about 9-11. So I'm just wondering, are you one of these uh, plants? or 9-11 opera? Just curious. It's okay. I mean, it's a free society. I'm just wondering. I mean, you're sitting there reading a little statement, right? I mean... Right. Yeah. So, well, are you going to answer the question? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'll answer. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not a plan. Yeah, I mean, you got your camera going, and you know, right. come on. Yeah, come on. This is going to be on YouTube tomorrow, right? <laughs> building seven, building seven. <laughs> and on, and on, and on. But I think you get the point by now. Back in November of last year, it was my honor to talk to Joshua Blakeney of the University of Lethbridge, who actually had the chance to confront Michael Shermer when he came to talk in Alberta a couple of years ago, and the footage of that confrontation is up on YouTube. And this conversation was held on Corbett Report Radio and Republic Broadcasting, and is of course available for download, along with all of the other things cited in today's episode from CorbettReport.com. Let's take a listen to a bit of that conversation with Joshua Blakeney about Michael Shermer. You know, this word skeptic, like who gets to claim the appellation of being a skeptic and who, uh, who's the gullible one? You know, this is the kind of two, ex two extremes, being gullible or being a pseudo-skeptic and being a skeptic. And I would say that this goes, goes back to, you know, the age of the Enlightenment and the idea that you don't just take, uh, you know, authorities' uh, uh, statements and um, actions on faith, but rather that you challenge those in authority and challenge those in power. And what uh, those such as Michael Shermer and his colleague, uh, you know, someone who cites his work a great deal, Jonathan Kay, I mean, it seems that you have this kind of incestuous relationship with those who take on the truth as where they kind of all cite each other, like Jonathan Kay and Michael Shermer uh, do. You have those uh, individuals that are taking things on faith, which I think would, would imply that they're actually rejecting the heritage of skepticism. Uh, and it's those of us who actually uh, don't just take the, for example, the interpretation that we were given within hours of 9-11, uh, we don't take that on faith, that we actually challenge those in power to provide us with evidence, scientific evidence, and so on, that we're the ones who are therefore, uh, you know, embracing the heritage of, of skepticism. And so in the case of Michael Shermer, it seems he's heading up an institution that actually teaches people and encourages people to be gullible rather than be skeptical. That, is it. that, that to me is the point of, the, of, of all of this, because it's not, I'm not here just saying that anyone who, who disagrees with me or who believes that the official story of 9-11 is, is ridiculous or, well, I do think it is a ridiculous story, but, but I'm sure there is some sort of argument to be made from that perspective, but I'm not here to say that that, that disagreement is what's wrong. I'm here to say that Michael Schirmer is being inherently dishonest in the way he's portraying his argument as if he is the holder of this skepticality and he gets to decide what is reasonable and what is just kooky and outrageous and can use all of these smears and convince his 
audience to take them on board because he is the the fount of all this knowledge about logical uh, reasoning and everything which which to be fair he has done a lot of great work on and if you listen to his uh, talks about about the logical fallacies and things like that i think they're spot on but when you apply them to his own writings on this subject he fails at his own standards which to me is the point it's a dishonest argumentation now, this is certainly not to say that Michael Shermer is the only proponent of the woo of the skeptical community. There are many of them out there. And what I find particularly humorous is that the skeptics, quote unquote, tend to be the biggest conspiracy theorists of them all. Basically, the Stop Island Piracy Act, it helps to solve a problem where uh, copyrighted material in the United States which is being pirated and streamed online or put out there somehow in other countries, that can be controlled somewhat. So, for example, okay, this is an international conversation. Let's say that Skeptically Speaking website decided to post Sean's book without getting permission on your website. With SOPA, because you're in Canada, Sean could very easily go to the Justice Department and get court orders that would require the bits and pieces underneath the Internet that allow you to hook to different websites to turn you off, disconnect you from the Internet so that you could be found but not easily, PayPal or Amazon or MasterCard or Visa would no longer work with you and any other kind of institutional or financial group would not legally be able to interact with you. It would be almost like if you know Macy's was sitting there in a, in a big shopping mall and a little boutique down the way started competing with them. Macy's could send their guys over there and just board it up. So you can't do it anymore. Um, and, but, but legally, okay? And the problem with that is it also makes it. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Am, am, am I Macy's or the boutique? You're in this case Macy's, <laughs> but the, the thing is, it, it makes it so easy to do that. Let's just say that Sean wanted to shut you down. He could take his book and pretend that he's someone else and post it on your website as comments. It's sort of like going to a restaurant and letting a bunch of cockroaches loose and then calling the health department to shut it down. It would be easy for U.S. corporations or individuals or interests to shut down foreign websites by faking a copyright infringement. And what does that have to do with science? First of all, an intermediate step is U.S. passes this law, every other country passes a similar law, so the entire world now works this way, or at least several countries. So now you've got an English law, that, a British law that mar mirrors the American law. So a bunch of global warming denialists in England closed down the American Association of Advancement of Science's website because they publish Science Magazine. They make it look like Science Magazine is stealing copyrighted materials. And a bunch of American global warming denialists shut down nature in England and so on. Uh, it, it just makes it very easy. I mean, obviously, the way this would actually work is large corporations put their resources, as they do now, into doing various marketing things and so on, into and legal things. You know, I, I know a guy who invented a, a way of making a piece of wood into something you would light on fire in your fireplace to get your wood burning, and he called it something that used the word light in it because you light it on fire, and a major corporation that makes a beverage simply showed up with their lawyers and said, you can't call it that. We have a product that has the word light in it. They couldn't possibly have won that in court, but he couldn't possibly have defended himself. Okay? So trademark and copyright already works that way. It's already the truth that the really big guys get to push around little guys. This just makes instruments for them to do it in a really major way internationally in ways that would allow, for example, the energy industry to shut down climate research. Oh, I get it. It's all becoming clear to me now. SOPA is really about the oil companies who are going to hire teams of lawyers to file intellectual property suits against climate scientists' websites in order to get them taken down from the web in order to end climate science as we know it. Now I understand it's all an oil company conspiracy. And yes, thus we reach the bizarre 
bizarre part of the this whole process whereby there are certain skeptically acceptable conspiracy theories that I guess broadly correspond to, shall we say, leftist politics if we want to trap ourselves in the left-right political paradigm. But, uh, but certainly if you pervade something uh, to the exact opposite effect that climate scientists in fact make enormous amounts of money from some of the work that they've done, as has been pointed out by myself and others in such articles as the the Alarmist Machine, which I'll put in the notes for today's episode. No, if you make that point, you're a crazy purveyor of conspiracy woo. But if you believe that it's the oil companies who are going to somehow use SOPA to take down climate science as we know it, well, that's perfectly logical. And of course, there are an assortment of other people who are genuinely well-meaning people who are doing podcasts and starting websites and trying to spread the word about skepticism. And then there are the other people of, shall we say, questionable integrity who claim to be journalists, quote-unquote, and are enlarging their pocketbooks by writing, quote-unquote, skeptical books, like Jonathan Kay, author of Among the Truthers. There has been an explosion of conspiracy theories flying fast and furious over the internet. Some believe that the death of Osama bin Laden was a ruse all to help President Obama get reelected, and that the tornado that killed more than 120 people in Missouri this week was the result of an obscure military-backed research program in Alaska. Joining me now to debunk some of these myths is John Kay, author of Among the Truthers, A Journey Through America's Growing Conspiracist Underground. John, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So you have immersed yourself in this conspiracy theory culture. I mean, you attended conventions, you joined Facebook groups, discussion boards. What was that like? Well, it was a very surreal experience because, uh, of course, I don't believe in these particular theories. Uh, but I was surrounded by people who do, and it is—it's uh, it's a bizarre place where the most fantastical things are taken as common knowledge. Okay, so what did you find out then from talking to these people, reading these blogs and these different posts? What did you find out? What fuels these trends of conspiracy? Well, the, the number one agree- uh, ingredient is distrust. Distrust not only in government, but in all public institutions, including the mainstream media. And in fact, as soon as I identified myself as someone who worked at a newspaper, uh, it was immediately assumed that I was um, sort of uh, in, the, uh, in the power of the, uh, the elites, if you will. Uh, no one really uh, thought that I would give them a fair shake. And uh, these are people who inhabit a media world entirely contained by the internet, Uh, fringe sites, they don't read newspapers, they don't listen to the radio, they pretty much just get their news from radicalized websites that they uh, go to on a daily basis. So then for the most part then, you weren't necessarily embraced by these conspiracy theorists trying to get their message out or trying to get their claims out there. You yourself were being questioned. Yeah, I was held in suspicion. At the same time, I think they were generally happy that someone was paying attention to them. I mean, for the most part, they feel completely ignored by the mainstream media. And I think on one hand, they were happy that someone was there, but they didn't think that they were going to get a fair shake. And the reaction to my book has been uh, has been in that vein. They just assume that um, since I'm from the mainstream media, I'm not going to take their views seriously. This time I will leave the logical debunking of John Kay to Michael Truskello of Wilfrid Laurier University from an event that took place in 2009 where Jonathan Kay was asking questions to a panel consisting of Gray McQueen, Anthony Hall, and Michael Truskello about 9-11. Sorry, can I ask uh, just a quick factual question about some of the theories you were talking about? Um, the first thing is, you know, a lot of your criticism about journalists are well taken, 
journalists are very ambitious, very careerist, but this plays into some of the material you had in your presentation about the BBC and the CNN um, allegedly having information about WTC7 coming down. I know from journalism that people are very um, eager to get scoops, they love to write books, they love to uh, make, make names for themselves. It seems like a great way to do that would be to take inside information about, hey look, there's this plot to take down WTC7 from inside. Why aren't these people at BBC and CNN writing best-selling books and getting rich and getting their names out? Just uh, quickly, uh, Jonathan, I, I try to encourage my students not to use uh, a priori reasoning, which is reasoning prior to the evidence. And this, the statement that you made about, you know, well, why wouldn't a journalist uh, follow this story is, is an example of that. Um, there are many such examples that are often used against 9-11 uh, skepticism. You know, it, 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 Bill O'Reilly actually asked the same question on his show. Um, if this were true, then wouldn't every journalist in the world be, you know, trying to get the scoop. Um, but I try to encourage not to make the assumptions prior to the examination of the evidence. Ouch, burn, that's got to hurt John, doesn't it? Well, at any rate, I trust that the basic underlying premise of today's episode is made clear by this point, that the so-called skeptics are not as skeptical as they claim to be. Just that fact alone is not necessarily what this episode is really about, because although it's very annoying to see hypocrites being hypocrites, it is unfortunately a fact of life, and uh, and there are hypocrites out there who use the uh, the very logical fallacies that they rage against, and, and it may pierce our soul to hear them, but at any rate they can be refuted. No, what this episode is about is something altogether darker, and unlike the conspiracy theories of the so-called skeptics who are worried about the oil companies using SOPA to bring down climate science in general, this theory actually has something to it. This is the BBC. This is the World Today from the BBC World Service. There's growing concern that conspiracy theories and propaganda are entering the classroom because young people can't separate the truth from misinformation on the internet. In a report drawn up, drawn up shown to the BBC, rather, a new British think tank, Demos, argues that pupils aren't being taught how to dissect the wealth of information online. Catherine Nye has this, been studying the findings. Where are you getting your information from? There was a documentary, I forgot the name of the guy, but he presented evidence showing that the 9-11 bomb was inside job. I forgot what it was called. Two secondary school classrooms, one in East London. Who, who made that video? Who made that picture? I'm not sure. I didn't look at the source, but I just... One in Liverpool. We're not the people who actually give out the information and who know what's right. We just get told what we get told and believe. Some of the theories they've heard on the internet. Osama bin Laden isn't dead. 9-11 was an inside job and police were slow to tackle rioters in August as an excuse to lock up young people. Why should we trust the government when um, everything that is basically being um, broadcasted on TV could be you know, misleading on us as well? Like, What are we meant to believe? This session is run by think tank Demos along with a creative agency called Bold to explore what information is being picked up online. For many of the pupils here it does have a heavy influence. Asked to rank in order of trust sources of information, the pupils in East London 
London put YouTube as the most trusted above the BBC and the government. Some of the teenagers are more savvy than others, of course. But in Liverpool, again, there was confusion as to how reliable online sources are. I was searching on Google. I don't believe the first answer that came up, to be honest. I know I shouldn't do it, but Google's like a trusted website. It's a lot of people's home pages, and you just automatically put trust in it. Demos argue that the problem of misinformation gathered from the internet is widespread and that pupils don't often have the skills to recognise bias and propaganda. At the lesser end, it's believing everything on Wikipedia is true. At the more severe, it's an alternative version of history presented online. The think tank's research looked at young people's digital literacy. It brought together existing research alongside conducting a survey of 500 teachers across England and Wales. Jamie Bartlett is a senior researcher at Demos. They didn't feel that their students were particularly good at understanding how search engines operate, but these are the skills now that are so central to education and to broader life for young people, but it's just not getting taught enough. A lot of information on the internet radical, is radical historical revisionism. You know, the Holocaust didn't really happen, so Holocaust denial, 9-11 was an inside job. This is extremely worrying because without a common base of history that we all understand and accept and agree upon, it's very hard for people to have a shared understanding of where we are now. Ah, yes, this is another familiar refrain to anyone who has delved into the skeptical podcasts and websites. The old refrain, oh, but but this conspiracy woo nonsense is, is gaining such popularity online and people are having their minds warped by this information. We must find a way to stop it. And once again, unlike the uh, the oil companies are going to use SOPA to take down climate science as we know it conspiracy. This is one that is actually demonstrable. And I will do that by pointing you to our good old friend Evgeny Morozov. And anyone who watched my recent eye-opener report on the Twitter revolution myth will know all about Mr. Morozov. But if you don't, I do suggest you Google his name and find, or not Google, certainly not Google, startpage.com his name and find out more about him. But at any rate, recently he wrote in Slate.com Warning, this site contains conspiracy theories. Does Google have a responsibility to help stop the spread of 9-11 denialism, anti-vaccine activism, and other fringe beliefs? Quote, In its early days, the web was often imagined as a global clearinghouse, a new type of library with the sum total of human knowledge always at our fingertips. That much has happened, but with a twist. In addition to borrowing existing items from its vast collections, we, the patrons, could also deposit our own books, pamphlets, and other scribbles with no or little quality control. Such democratization of information gathering, when accompanied by smart institutional and technological arrangements, has been tremendously useful, giving us Wikipedia and Twitter. But it has also spawned thousands of sites that undermine scientific consensus – overturn well-established facts and promote conspiracy theories. Meanwhile, the move towards social search may further insulate regular visitors to such sites. Discovering even more links found by their equally paranoid friends will hard hardly enlighten them. Is it time for some kind of a quality control system? End quote. Well, I will let you go and read the rest of that article for yourself if you can stomach it. But yes, I think you can see the beginnings of the shaping of a narrative here that the internet and the democratization of knowledge that it represents 
is in fact a terrible thing that could lead us all down into this quagmire of conspiracy theories and, and false information that becomes so popular in the public consciousness that we must find a way of clamping down on it before it becomes too much of a problem. Or would it be a conspiracy theory deposit that the people who are saying this are in some way, well, shall we say, working with the establishment to clamp down on the polysemy of ideas? Hmm, I, I, I wonder how they would attack that idea. Well, at any rate, I think the listeners of this podcast well understand the implications of this, especially in light of all of the clampdowns on the internet that we've been seeing taking place in more and more overt forms in recent weeks and months, and the idea that has been being gradually introduced for some time now, and it seems to be coming to a head, that we must find ways of clamping down on all of this crazy conspiracy theory on the internet. Well, of course, in any logical universe, the greatest defense that we have would be to show that the purveyors of the official conspiracy theories of record are in fact the purveyors of the craziest conspiracy theories of them all. On the morning of September 11, 2001, 19 men armed with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis in a cave fortress halfway around the world using a satellite phone and a laptop directed the most sophisticated penetration of the most heavily defended airspace in the world. Overpowering the passengers and the military combat trained pilots on four commercial aircraft before flying those planes wildly off course for over an hour without being molested by a single fighter interceptor. These 19 hijackers, devout religious fundamentalists who like to drink alcohol, snort cocaine, and live with pink-haired strippers, managed to knock down three buildings with two planes in New York. While in Washington, a pilot who couldn't handle a single-engine Cessna was able to fly a 757 in an 8,000-foot descending 270-degree corkscrew turn to come exactly level with the ground, hitting the Pentagon in the budget analyst office where DOD staffers were working on the mystery of the $2.3 trillion that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld had announced missing from the Pentagon's coffers in a press conference the day before, on September 10th. 2001. Luckily, the news anchors knew who did it within minutes. Osama bin Laden. The pundits knew within hours. Osama bin Laden. The administration knew within the day. Terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. And the evidence literally fell into the FBI's lap. That a hijacker's passport was found blocks from the World Trade Center crash site, if you can believe that. But for some reason, a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists demanded an investigation into the greatest attack on American soil in history. That investigation was delayed, underfunded, set up to fail, a conflict of interest, and a cover-up from start to finish. It was based on testimony extracted through torture, the records of which were destroyed. It failed to mention the existence of WTC-7, Able Danger, P-TECH, Sibel Edmonds, OBL and the CIA, and the drills of hijacked aircraft being flown into buildings that were being simulated at the precise same time that those events were actually happening. It was lied to by the Pentagon, the CIA, the Bush administration, and as for Bush and Cheney, well, no one knows what they told it because they testified in secret, off the record, not under oath, and behind closed doors. It didn't bother to look at who funded the attacks because that question is ultimately of little practical significance. Still, the 9-11 Commission did brilliantly answering all of the questions the public had, except most of the victim's family members' questions, and pinned blame on all the people responsible, although no one so much as lost their job, determining the attacks were Failure of imagination Because Nobody in our government, at least, and I don't think the prior government that could envision flying airplanes in the buildings. Except the Pentagon, FEMA, NORAD, and the NRO. 
The DIA destroyed 2.5 terabytes of data on Able Danger, but that's okay because it probably wasn't important. The SEC destroyed their records on the investigation into the insider trading before the attacks, but that's okay because destroying the records of the largest investigation in SEC history is just part of routine record keeping. NIST has classified the data that they used for their model of WTC7's collapse, but that's okay because knowing how they made their model of the collapse would jeopardize public safety. The FBI has argued that all material related to their investigation of 9-11 should be kept secret from the public, but that's okay because the FBI probably has nothing to hide. This man never existed, nor is anything he had to say worthy of your attention, and if you say otherwise, you are a paranoid conspiracy theorist and deserve to be shunned by all of humanity. Likewise him, 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 and her. And her, and her, and him. Osama bin Laden lived in a cave fortress in the hills of Afghanistan, but somehow got away. Then he was hiding out in Tora Bora, but somehow got away. Then he lived in Abbottabad for years, taunting the most comprehensive intelligence dragnet employing the most sophisticated technology in the history of the world for a decade, releasing video after video with complete impunity and getting younger and younger as he did so, before finally being found in a daring SEAL team raid which wasn't recorded on video, in which he didn't resist or use his wife as a human shield, and in which these crack special forces operatives panicked and killed this unarmed man, supposedly the best source of intelligence about those dastardly terrorists on the entire planet. Then they dumped his body in the ocean before telling anyone about it. Then a couple dozen of that team's members died in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. This is the story of 9-11, brought to you by the media which told you the hard truths about His head could be seen to move violently forward. And They took the babies out of the incubators. And Mobile production facilities. And The rescue of Jessica Lynch. If you have any questions about this story, you are a batshit, paranoid, tinfoil, dog-abusing baby hater, and will be reviled by everyone. If you love your country and or freedom, happiness, rainbows, rock and roll, puppy dogs, apple pie, and your grandma, you will never ever express doubts about any part of this story to anyone. Ever. This has been a public service announcement by the friends of the FBI, CIA, NSA, DIA, SEC, MSM, White House, NIST, and the 9-11 Commission. Because ignorance is strength. But whoever said this was a logical world after all? Well, let's just clarify one thing today at the end of today's episode, and that is that I am not in any way, shape, or form trying to position myself in opposition to skepticism. Quite the contrary. I want to embrace that term. I want to reclaim that term for what it really means, which is to say that we should take a skeptical attitude toward any claim, and we should weigh the evidence or lack thereof for each claim before we come to a decision about whether or not it has merit. And that represents a process, a way in which we come to an understanding of what did or did not take place. And yes, there can always and always will be errors in our reasoning from here to there, and we will not always be 100% infallible. We are human. We do make mistakes. We do have inadequate access to information. We do have uh, errors in reasoning. There are all sorts of ways in which we can be misled or led down wrong, blind alleys, etc., etc., so I never have and never will claim to have the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth on every topic. I do my level best to present the information as factually and as completely and as in a proper context as I can. But again, I'm human, which is why I always provide the sources for what I say so that you can go and put the cookie crumb trail together for yourself and come to your own conclusions. And ultimately, that's what it's about. Remain skeptical. Remain skeptical of myself and of every other source of information. Verify for yourself. And when you have verified for yourself, 
try to look for the flaws in reasoning of the people who are arguing otherwise. And question your own assumptions, because quite often you can be wrong, as I have been many times in the past. Believe it or not, I'm a human. I have made errors as well, which is what, for example, the Patriot Mythology editions of this podcast have been about. So the ultimate point of today's episode is not to say that we are against the skeptics, but that we are the skeptics. And if that's the case, we have to start acting like that. We have to question our own assumptions. We have to think things through. We have to evaluate the evidence. We have to make sure that we're not employing logical fallacies when we're reasoning with others. And that is a lot to, uh, to ask for. It's a tall order, and it's a high st- standard to set for oneself. It's a high place to put the bar. But that's exactly what we must do. And so I think there's a lot to be learned from skepticism, which is why, in fact, I invite and implore, I beg you to go and look at some of these sources that do question some of the things that we take for granted. And in fact, I do that myself on a frequent basis. I think it's important to constantly be questioning some of the things that we think we know. And quite often I've found that things that I have thought I I was sure of have turned out to be not so sure once you actually start taking a look into them. So, once again, this is a process. It is a journey. There is no final point where we will come to a complete understanding of the total world around us, but we must employ the best process we can in evaluating the claims as they arise. And if we do that equally and evenly, and if we don't resort to ad hominems and strawmans and all the other forms of fallacious reasoning that send us down rabbit holes and into the wrong corners and down blind alleys, then we have a chance of ultimately besting the people who would try to keep these ideas down in their very own arena of logical reasoning. And on that note, that's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.